All right. Uh, yes, good morning. Uh, we gather around God's Word this morning and uh, grow in it and through it. Um, after my study on the Sermon on the Mount, I think it was a couple of months ago now, I came away with such a rich cache of treasures, of biblical admonition and encouragement in those three chapters, um, that I wanted to just draw from that a few more sermons. If I was clever, I could probably get six years of sermons out of them, but I am going to just do a few more. Now, in that Sermon on the Mount, it's one that shattered the idea of that time and of today of self-righteous works. And in preaching that Sermon on the Mount, Christ really awakened the hearers to one very fundamental truth, that they must live by faith, not by works. He upended the belief that you can be spiritual by fulfilling the law or dutifully religious activity. In the Sermon on the Mount, Christ invites people to live under His saving grace and receive spiritual blessing by living in faith, by faith for Him. This morning I want to look specifically at what Christ teaches about judging in this Sermon on the Mount in in chapter 7, just after that sermon. And, um, and then other passages to help us understand the importance of discerning in the world that we're living in. Uh, as we're going through CRT and social justice and, and looking at how quickly the foundations of our society and ultimately the foundations of the gospel and of the word are being not replaced, simply removed. It would be one thing if they were being replaced with something. Because then you could interact with that something that's being replaced by. You could measure it. You could assess it. You could discuss and debate it. Uh, You could see its integrity or lack of. But they're just simply pulling away the foundations and watching the rubble fall where it it may. So we need to be on guard. These aren't just theological discussions. Because if it's theological, it's spiritual. And if it's spiritual, it's eternal. These have consequences. These change the direction of not just society, but our individual lives and our walk. So it does seem tedious at times, but the application is dire. You know, we looked at it, at this idea of judging and discernment a while back, several years ago, I think it was, in our discipleship. And I even preached on this topic, but not this message, um, after doing that, or around that time. But it was an evening service, and there was about five of you, and it was in the other venue. Uh, So those five of you who are picking out some of these points, again, I apologize, Peter, probably Denver. uh, But it was never recorded, it was never part of the the Sermon on the Mount, and I wanted to now have another kick at this one, because I really feel it's pertinent to our time. All things are pertinent to our time scripturally, but this is of particular concern. So let's, let's look at what God says about judging. And in the context of being discerning and judging, how do we do that and still bring Him glory? If you recall from that discipleship teaching, we know part of that judgment or judging that believers use is in the context of church discipline, which 
discipline which we'll look at. And that church discipline exists to protect the believers and the church. Where members of a church are to go individually to that brother, privately, and to discuss the perceived or real sin that is uh, at issue. And why do they do that? Why do they go privately and personally? They do it because they love that brother. There's a concern for that brother's sanctification and his walk. And they want him to be right with God and right with one another. They want to be reconciled with the Lord and reconciled with the one who's perceived or seen that sin or was a victim of that sin. They also do it because they love the church. And they don't want to overlook or gloss over sins that have a cancerous effect in the body. They want to protect the purity of the church and the potential that it would lead others astray. That's why we practice discipline. Matthew 18, church discipline. We also learned in that discipleship that a a church that practices church discipline is a church that does hold people to a standard. God's standard, His biblical standard. It's a church that believes that godliness is more important than tolerance. A godly church does not just practice toleration of one another, tolerance of one's personal choices, but rather a prayerful watch over one another. It's a church that meets together to confess to one another our sins and to seek counsel for one another as we walk. A church that practices church discipline is one that has a high view of God's glory and desires to maintain that unity that is from Him. And it's based on His holiness Not a list of permissible sins in the church, such as the church in 1 Corinthians, where Paul, remember, he rebukes the church for overlooking that dreadful sin of fornication, rather than dealing with it. But today, fast forward to our church era, we are living in an age of individualism, of tolerance, and church disciplines become a command that is really diminished in some churches and completely avoided in others. It's avoided for a very good reason, if you look at it from the world's perspective, because there's a belief that maintaining peace is more important than upholding the truth. Comfort is more important than godliness. Peace and comfort, you hear that all the time. Peace and comfort is why many go to the church. They want to feel comforted. They want to feel at peace with even their sinful lives. And that's what's preached, peace and comfort. That's why they come and that's why they stay. So the message has to stay on course. It's easy believism that keeps them there. In his book, Who Are You to Judge? Erwin Lutzer, um, and remember that book's 10 years old now, (laughs) he says this about our modern post-truth times. Truth has disappeared. And few have noticed. Before our eyes, the old thought and forms are crumbling, and in their place we find new ways of seeing the world and our experiences of it. Some of us grew up with with assumptions that are being discarded, and in their place are new assumptions that stand in direct opposition to the gospel. Perhaps it's not too strong to say that war has been declared on in the past in favor of a brave new future. He goes on to say, um, There was a time when people believed that truth existed, even though they may have disagreed on what it was. Today a belief is evaluated not on the basis of whether it is truth 
true or false, but if, is it fair? And we've kind of looked at that this morning with critical race theory. It's no longer about propositional truths or truth claims. It's about how do I feel? Think of what this means for those who believe in the gospel. The idea that salvation comes through Christ alone is certainly not fair, is it? You don't have a say. God chooses. God draws you. And think of the implications as we evangelize the world, our community, as we engage with people who don't understand the gospel. Gospel, You're declaring to them they're condemned. You're declaring that they are, in fact, sinners, even though they feel quite righteous about their own lives. If you ask them, are you a good person, they will all say yes. And you are saying, no, you are a wretched sinner. And that is certainly not winsome or fair in their eyes. So this morning we're going to consider what it means to practice discernment and judgment within the church context we'll look at, but also outside to the world. And we're going to clarify it's vital to always judge with right judgment, which we will define this morning. Let's turn to Matthew 7.1. Um, this is an often misapplied passage that reads, and is probably the most quoted passage amongst the unbelieving world, Judge not that you be not judged. That's the ESV or the NIV, which reads even more to the point, Do not judge or you too will be judged. But let's turn there. Uh, Matthew 7. Judge not that you not be, be, be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And why do you who see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take out the log of your own eye, out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Let's pray. Father, as we just turn to your word this morning, we uh, thank you that we have this precious truth before us. That, Lord, we um, are equipped by it. And, Lord, that by your saving work in our own lives and by your spirit, we can discern its meaning. We can apply its truth and we can grow from it in sanctification. The Lord, that we are um, transformed daily as we grow in it. We are reformed as we live through it. And uh, Lord, we just thank you for its many, many, many treasures. And uh, Lord, may we listen for uh, ways that we can apply this truth in our, in our day. And Lord, as we live in these confusing and often frustrating times, we lean on your understanding. We lean on the truth of your word and not on our own. And uh, Lord, we thank you for it. We thank you, Lord, for this body of believers who also seek to bring you glory, that it can only be known and understood through your word. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Let me just turn on my little timer here. I don't know, but the announcement's longer than the sermon. I'm not sure, but we'll, I'm going to have to borrow a bit of that time. But, but they were very good. That was the best announcements we've ever had. Not exaggerating. All right. Let's carry on here in our passage. So to understand what Christ is saying here, it's important to always look at the context, right? Let's look back a little bit in the Sermon on the Mount. And that should be fresh in your mind because 
It was preached not long ago. <laughs> so if you can recall anything from that sermon, Christ's sermon, it's important to note that Christ points out that sins are formed and sins are even committed in the heart. Even if they don't lead to an action, the sin has been committed in the heart already. Right? It's the motivation of man that counts. Not just what he does or does not do externally. The putting on and putting off is not the thing that causes or prevents sin. It's an internal condition. And in that Sermon on the Mount, what is Christ continually doing? He's revealing hypocrisy through every verse. For example, the hypocrite he talks about in Matthew 6, verse 5. What do they do? They pray to, to be seen by men because they want their praise from men. And the reward is just that. It's a worldly praise, empty, diminished, and not everlasting. He's praying for his own sake and not for the Lord's sake. How do we actually pray? And the next verse says, instructs us, Christ instructs us to pray in the inner room as not to be seen and to pray humbly to God in private. This prayer is about glorifying God, not man. We minimize ourselves and we extol the Lord. Another example is the false prophet in Matthew 7, verse 15 to 23. Christ teaches us that every bad tree bears bad fruit. And so we'll know them how? By their fruit, right? So that's the context of teaching false prophets. And Jesus' sermon also contains warnings against anger in Matthew 5.22. In verse 28, he warns against lust and, and so on. Christ commands us to love our enemies even, which was the real shocking part of that sermon. So there is an overarching theme here where Jesus teaches about sins in a way that shows everybody is in that state of sin. And in that state of sin, they all need God's righteousness. In 5 verse 20, Christ says this, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and of the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That statement shocked the hearers, because the scribes and the Pharisees who were there were the religious untouchables, the spiritual elite. Their very role in existence was about upholding this standard that they established and they lived by. They lived, tried to uphold it perfectly. And they were always creating new laws and clauses. And they were the ones who were enforcing it and maintaining these spiritual laws that governed theirs and others' behaviors. But Christ here is now turning that on its head or nullifying the external He's now pointing to the internal, not the ritual. He pointed to a fulfillment of righteousness that not external rules or laws could bring, but a righteousness that must be from the Lord. A righteousness that recon reconciles motive and, and thought. In this context, what is the meaning then of Matthew 7 verse 105? That judge not that ye not be judged. Here, Jesus is warning about judging with self-righteousness. As sinners, we tend to minimize or justify our own sins. And because of this, we always see the sins of others before we see our own. Greater than our own, even. Maybe we could say, all right, I've also sinned, but yours is certainly worse than mine. We always 
magnify the sins of others and minimize our own. So he warns about this hypocrisy. He warns about this self-righteousness that keeps men from seeing his righteousness or their need for his righteousness. If you, like the Pharisees, feel justified by your works and your faithfulness to church and your prayer life and all the things you do, you won't feel the need to be justified by his righteousness because you are already wearing your own. You are justified. You're your own authority. So you are certainly able to justify yourself. And it's only when we understand our need for Christ's righteousness that man can escape his love for self-righteousness and justification. And from that is where humility comes in, which Christ continually brings out in the Sermon on the Mount. Genuine humility, or what he calls poverty of spirit, you remember that phrase, or poor in spirit, comes from knowing that we are clothed in his righteousness, not our own. That we have no righteousness whatsoever of our own or in and of ourselves. It is only by God's mercy and grace that we are able to be righteous. And from that understanding and that positional placement that he puts you in, changes your view completely. And with this, you are able now finally to live with grace and humility towards God and towards others. So, does Matthew 7 then, in this context of judging not, teach that humility means to withhold judgment, to withhold a truth claim, to withhold a difficult thing to say? No. One could argue, well, who are we? We're but dust. I'll leave it to the Lord. My opinion doesn't matter, and that's, that's true. But we're not talking about your opinion here. We're talking about, thus saith the Lord. We sometimes withhold that because it's coming out of our mouths. Well, no, that is not what we are learning here from Matthew 7. This passage warns again about that self-righteous, judgmentalism you have. And it also warns us about judging the motives of others. To not judge the internal things that you cannot see that are, belong to the Lord alone. Other passages which we'll look at later show us that we can and should judge what people say or what they teach, but not the intent, not the heart, not their motives. Those are to be left with the Lord. We are only to deal with what they say or do, and even that should be done in, without the intent of character assassination or to be malicious or to gossip or to presume. It should be done carefully. So let's look at a few more texts to verify that believers are in fact permitted to judge what people teach and what people say, but within the bounds of judging rightly. That's key. If we look back to Matthew 18, we did spend quite a bit of time on that in our discipleship time. If you recall our teaching, you'll remember the first part of church discipline is what? Go to him. Go to your brother in private. It's not a suggestion. Christ isn't saying just to keep tensions down, go quietly if you're able to. No, it's a command, prescribe. That is how you must deal with things. That is the first step that cannot be skipped. We are to be guided by Matthew 18 at all times when we are dealing with disputes between believers. That is vital for the health of the church. Now, Matthew 18 is not instructive on dealing with 
believers outside the church, which I'll deal with as well. That's clear. But there is a principle that should also be applied when dealing with family that are believers or friends that are believers that aren't part of your church. The principle remains, go to them privately because why are you doing quietly and privately? To avoid gossip, to assume that maybe you are wrong in, your, in what you perceived and to protect their testimony as well before word might get out. So the principle remind, remains, but this command is um, in the context of the church. You want your accusation or your confrontation to be private so it can be discussed and <coughs> confirmed. So turn with me to Matthew 18. I just want to go through this quickly. Uh, it helps us to get back to this foundational teaching. It helps us understand discernment in general and judging in particular. It begins in Matthew 18 with the disciples discussing. Remember, um, they're asking Jesus, who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom? That's the, where, they're, where, where they're talking, and that's where we pick up on verse 18. And at the time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? It's important to remember the context and the, the understanding that the disciples still had or the wishful thinking they had that this Messiah was going to um, um, be a conqueror, a conquering Savior in this earthly kingdom. So the context, they were wondering what their positions would be as he leads them to victory in an earthly kingdom. But Jesus was concerned more about their selfish desire, their, their selfish line of questioning, and he warns them about their self-righteous attitude that would bring that harm to the gospel. So he responds here in verse 4 with concern. Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like a child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So his reply shows them that they're asking the wrong question and shows them that rather than concern for esteem and position, they should instead have a concern for serving the Lord. He discusses the children, or in some versions, the little ones, meaning those who would be mistreated or set aside or seen as a second class in, in the kingdom. And uh, The children or young believers would be seen as unimportant to those who are only thinking about position and authority and esteem and greatness. The great and important ones would neglect the weaker or the younger, and in this passage, he teaches that every believer is seen as important and that other believers should be concerned for the other's spiritual well-being as well. So still in this context, if we read verse 15 to 17, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained a brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them... Then tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. This passage is concerned with believers who sin and may be straying, even unwittingly so, from the righteousness of Christ. He's warning that the tendency for people who are seeking greatness in the kingdom would be permitting sins. They'd overlook the sins. 
so that their righteousness would seem greater. And those concerned about esteeming themselves aren't going to be concerned about the sins of others. Because what does it do? By default, it elevates them. I'm not like them. And those who wander off and perish um, destroy the church. And the, the ones who are esteeming themselves love their own merit more than they love the sanctification of others. And that is what we're concerned about when we talk about church discernment and, dis- and discipline. So within this context, we can see the importance then of admonition um, that other believers should love giving and receiving. And that is, that is why we do it privately initially and why we do it carefully. We do it according to God's commanded way of, of, of doing it. We are protecting their witness and their testimony and we are also protecting the purity and the unity of the church. So Christ in Matthew 18 does not mention specific sins. He doesn't lay out these ones and not those ones. Uh, he doesn't deal with ones that will come up in the church, but rather he deals with our motivation and how we are to deal with those sins. So the entire process outlined in Matthew 18 is about restoring church members who are in danger of perishing by not dealing with those sins, by not repenting of sins. If the process does not result in a person repenting, then the instructions are clear. We just read, to be treated as someone who doesn't want to be godly, someone who is not living as a believer, and they should be treated as such. And as we discussed uh, back in our study in this passage, in our discipleship time, it should be said and repeated, I think, that a true believer that is confronted in this way, a, a true believer that is approached by another believer about a sin should respond in an affirmative way, a positive way, a grateful way. Humanly speaking, we might be shocked, particularly if the accusation is not true, but then it would be easily verified that it's not true. If another believer is recognizing a sin in others and they go with love and concern for that brother or sister, and that brother or sister does want to glorify God, how will they respond? Thank you. I didn't see it. Or I didn't think much of it. But thank you. Thank you for showing me that I need to repent. They will seek restoration. And they will be quick to forgive and to repent. Those two that come together. So Matthew 18 is one way that we use judgment. But it's God's judgment. His word that we are using. We're not weaponizing it. We're doing it with truth and grace. The steps are clear. They have specific sequence and a very specific outcome in mind, and that outcome is the restoration of the one who is sinning. But what about judging then outside the church, such as false teaching? Does Matthew 18 also prescribe this way we should uh, deal with it? Should we never correct, or should we um, judge without first speaking to the person? If I'm reading a book, by someone, I think, oh, that's, that's quite off. That's not right. That's not biblical. Do I need to go to the author, sit with him, confront him privately? No, that's not, that's not actually how we deal with it. False teaching is something we can't allow in the church. For the same reason Jesus tells us to care for the spiritual um, and to care for the, sorry, the spiritual well-being of the members of the church. Notice that in verse 16 of Matthew 18, 
says that two or three witnesses should be sure that every charge may be established, or in fact, every fact. It needs to be confirmed before you go to the next steps. That's important. Because someone could falsely accuse or misunderstand something that was not in fact sinful. And by then the cat's out of the bag if you haven't gone privately. So the witnesses are confirming that the person in question is guilty of that sin. And that he also refuses to repent. That's the other part. But this doesn't open the door to make generalized assessments of people or authors or public speakers. It does not open the door to character assassination uh, because you may disagree with the opinion of another author or teacher. Our assessments in this case of dealing with external teaching is Bible-based, not opinion-based. We still need to be judging based on what is said or what is written, not what is in the heart. We can't know that. We can't judge Benny Hinn's heart, for example, but we can sure deal with his teachings because it's written. It's confirmed. So Paul also confirms that we should be discerning and judging of teaching outside of the church. That's my, my point here, where he warns the church about passing judgment. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5 and 6. He explains what, first of all, in verse 5, what we should not judge. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 5. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things that are now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. So Paul's telling the Corinthian church that there are some things that we will not know until God's future judgment. And one of these things, he says, is the purposes of the heart which means we cannot judge men and their motives. And those are things that we cannot know. So even though we need to judge what people say, we need to avoid judging intent, because that's to be left to God alone. So what was wrong with the judgment that the Corinthians were guilty of here? Um, there were, they were judging matters of the heart, things that only God should know. In verse 6, Paul continues... I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. There's the boundaries. That none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against the other. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you've received it, why do you boast if you did not receive it? As if you did not receive it. The Corinthians were judging who was the superior apostle? As Peter mentioned, I think it was last week, they had this super apostle view, and they're pitting one apostle against the next. And then they would align themselves with those favored apostles and thought they were more worthy than the next because of it. So they had created cults of personality. And Paul's telling them that they cannot know the hearts of men and that they should only judge according to what is written, because that's all that can be measured and judged by men. So in the arena of public proclamations or writings, books or sermons, we are to judge what is written. We are not to judge motive or the intent or even their character. Some of those things are hidden from us. Well, the character, I suppose, is revealed in the fruit, but their intent. We deal with only what we can know. Now let's look at another way that discernment is applied in the church and judgment. 
Let's look at how the church leaders are charged with protecting the church from false teachers. Where we, as a body, apply judgment in what is said or written. Paul gives a warning to the church in Acts 20, verse 28. And he warns the church leaders to equip the body to withstand false teachings and false teachings of the wolves that inevitably find their way into the church. Verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which He obtained with His own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from, from among your own selves will arise men twist, speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Notice that the wolves do come from outside the church, but they also arise from within. We need to be a watch, not just for the external threats and ideologies and philosophies and heresies that compromise the gospel, but also from within. Wolves will come, but they could already be in our midst. So leaders or overseers must always be discerning and listening carefully to what is said and what is being taught. Paul describes the practice of the wolves, doesn't he? What do they do? They speak twisted things. That word twisted means perverse. It means to distort something. Which means their teachings are tortured versions of maybe a truth. And that's the difficult thing about a twisted truth. is because there's always a bit of it in there. Just enough truth to sound truthful or convincing. There's always something correct about what is being said, but yet laced with deception. And by twisting the words, the meaning is no longer true, but a contorted or a twisted truth. We've looked at this morning with CRT and how the language used presupposes you're on the wrong side. Right? Um, I'll give an example of BLM, controversial example maybe. But who would disagree with that? Black Lives Matter. Of course they do. And so if you don't, don't jump on board to what all that ideology entails, you disagree. You don't think black lives matter. The terminology is very slippery. We've got to really peel back the, the intent or the, the meaning of those words, because words do have meaning, at least in the church. Not so much anymore, I'm afraid, outside. But notice what happens through the teaching of the wolves. They, they what? They draw away the disciples after them, right? They lure because of their winsome teaching. As false as it is, it's appealing. False teachers and prophets have a message of self-righteousness. The same kind that we found earlier when we looked at the Pharisees, right? The reason these wolves draw disciples away after themselves is that the, the message tickles the ears, and draws the carnal heart um, towards what the carnal heart wants, and that is to be esteemed and to be self-righteous. So a wolf, then, is anyone who intentionally twists the straight teaching of Scripture, and then, when confronted with that, will refuse to repent. I will probably teach something from this pulpit I'll regret in five years, and say, you know, I didn't think through that passage very carefully. 
doesn't mean I'm a wolf. Yes, I need to shave every day, but I'm still not a wolf. <laughs> That's different. If I then said, I carefully penned that message to lure you away from the truth, then I would be a wolf. Um, so we need to make that distinction. Error does not mean wolf. Paul's warning here, though, is that leaders must guard against such a person. The duty of the elders and pastors is to protect the sheep from this kind of teaching and to equip the church with sound. But today we're living in a time of perpetual delusion. This morning's uh, discipleship didn't reveal that, and, and I agree with Hilton. If you don't see it, I don't know what world you're living in. Uh, and, and, and it could be because you, you aren't in that environment, or maybe you work from home. And maybe you've been protected from it. And maybe you don't watch news at all. That's great, I think. But as you, you can't unsee it now that you've seen it. And you'll see how long and deep those tentacles are in everyday society. So we're living in a time where almost most truth claims are met with distrust and skepticism. Propositional truth is routinely, routinely, routinely rejected which is why then the source of truth, which is God's word, is ultimately rejected as well. Truth claims come from the truth maker, the, the, the source of truth. It's like every question is ultimately a theological question because ultimately it must say, is it true? And we have to think theologically in this undiscerning world. So now, more than ever, the church must confront this kind of false teaching, whether it be as um, historically uh, disconnected from the church like CRT or uh, critical number theory as well. Another one we've got to worry about. Uh, there's critical feminist theory. There's lots of things that normally the church would say, oh, that's, that's out there. We don't have to worry about it. But it's now in the church. The wolves are there. So what does Paul say about our problem today in 2 Timothy? He says this, I charge you in the presence of God of Christ, and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom, preach the word. Preach the word. More than that, be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will no longer endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Very visual passage there. You can see it happening. That Greek word translated itching literally means to scratch or rub or tickle. It's a pleasant thing. We have a puppy who loves his ears tickled. I'm not trying to spiritualize the tickling, but you can see that that's something they look forward to. The visual imagery is here as well. We love our ears rubbed or an itch scratched. We desire a feel-good message which all wolves preach. They don't treat, preach condemnation. They preach that you are good, inherently good even, and that they preach that your desires will be fulfilled, not God's desires. So people who seek these kinds of messages are not interested in sound doctrine, but rather things that are novel, things that are entertaining, things that are shallow. So when people have itching ears, they decide for themselves what is right and what is wrong. 
and they will seek out like-minded teachers to confirm that. And so Paul warning here is the church would one day be filled with those who are only looking for things that please them, not grow them. You can see these kinds of messages today where people are uh, not expected to deal with anything. They're not expected to confront with any sin in their life. Assurance is given, given that all is well, that people are genuinely good and you'll be fine. And you walk away feeling pretty good about yourself, but empty. An itching ear will also have a heart that believes it is wrong to judge, which is the point. They have not confronted a God that shows their sins, but only feels, fills them with the feelings that affirm them. They are not confronted with the truth of the, of the word. And in their God is a permissive God, not a loving God. Now, some say God is so loving that he wouldn't condemn a sinner. But I say, look, at, they are looking for a permissive God, not a loving God, because a love, genuine love requires truth. It requires correction and reproof. So back to 2 Timothy here, 4. This tickling of the ear is not limited to soft sermons and false teaching. It's a warning that applies even to the world we're in, to the books we read, even Christian books. We need to be discerning. We need to make sure that we're not just leaning or, or gravitated toward things that make us feel good or confirms what we've already presupposed to be true. There's never challenged what we watch, who we follow, and as professing believers, we need to always be filling our minds and hearts with the truth of God's Word and continually seek out teaching that is maybe um, challenging what we already believe on an issue. Here, though, these guys were seeking out teaching that only agrees with them. And Paul warns what happens next, verse 4, and they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So it's vital that church leadership is active in protecting the church from this ever-present um, desire to be entertained or to be tickled uh, in the years. And this notion that we need to keep you entertained with novelty and uh, keep you happy. We have to apply judgment to the teaching that we allow in the church in order to keep the saints from wandering from the truth. So, what we can and cannot judge, I hope it's what we've learned so far, is that we are to judge what is taught and not motives. Judging a motive means you're placing yourself in the place where God is, where you claim to know the heart of that man or the intent of that person. But what we also have learned from Matthew 18 is we must first go quietly to someone who is sinning and that we are not to accuse someone of sin publicly without um, that first private discussion. And then we take two or three witnesses and so on. And throughout this process of Matthew 18, the hope is always repentance, the restoration of the believer, not the punitive measure of punishing sin. The, the, the desire, the goal of Matthew 18 is restoration of that believer. But there's another example of a type of judgment Christian must avoid. 
And that's the area of liberty and conscience. If we turn to Romans 14, we see here that we are not to judge matters of conscience that are not clearly uh, prescribed or described in Scripture, that where you can't find a clear command or principle to declare it a sin. And here's what Paul wrote in Romans 14.1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. So in verses 4 to 10, Paul expands here the warning to not judge another believer on matters of liberty here, such as foods or even observances of certain days. And the admonition here from Paul tells us that it's wrong to then exclude somebody because God welcomes him. And if it's just a matter of your conscience not lining up with his, it's not a reason to exclude people or to judge them. His conscience may be more sensitive on things that you have outgrown because um, it's not a command, so you're able to look beyond it. Uh, And where Scripture then allows liberty um, to refrain or to not refrain or to partake in, you need to allow allowances for that. But it's important to note that if the weaker brother then demands that others follow him, his preferences, his observances... That would, what we call, we would then call that legalism. And that should be challenged scripturally. Legalism needs to be confronted in the church because it takes a liberty and makes it a sin. And if a liberty is then elevated to a place of sin, what does that make the weaker brother? He is then a lawgiver. He's a lawmaker. Someone who is then speaking on behalf of God where God is silent. That is the definition of legalism. Again, we can and should only judge what is true or false, righteous or unrighteous, because of what Scripture teaches clearly on that issue. Yeah, we can only judge what is known objectively, but we cannot judge what we cannot know objectively. So ask yourself, I suppose, If you're in these situations, there's a quick question you can ask yourself to know, is this something that I should be confronting, judging, discerning? Does the Bible forbid this deed or this attitude? If the answer is no, then you should refrain from judging. If the answer is yes, then it does become a sin issue or a biblical issue. And that's where we use judgment. I'm just going to summarize here for the sake of time. In, we need to apply a little bit what we are learning here. Um, and I'm going to leave you with three principle, four principles. That the first principle is to judge with God's word only. Scripture instructs us to also judge with love and concern. And as, as we looked at 1 Corinthians 5, Paul commands the church to not associate with the sexual immoral people. Which, if we obey, means that we are making a judgment, means we are applying this discernment. And same, likewise, Christ says in John 7, 24, do not judge by appearances, but with right judgment. So, 
it's clear that Christ expects believers to judge. We are judge, judgmental people. But it's not our own personal judgment. We are not applying our own righteousness to a situation, but God's. And He commands us to do that with love and concern of His righteousness. Concern for the brother or sister, yes, but our foremost concern is glorifying God. Does this bring Him glory? This means we will use His word lovingly if He is the object of our glorification. Next, we need to be concerned only with actions, not the motivation, not the heart. Don't go beyond what is written, is what Paul warns us. Right? We must never uh, seek to find ways of attributing uh, behavior or assuming the heart to be um, having malicious intent, but only what is heard or what is written or what is said. And again, in 1 Corinthians 4, Paul says, avoid judging the heart. Don't pronounce judgment on those things that belong to the Lord. So believers need to keep that personal assessment, the opinion to themselves, and only objectively discern what they can evaluate according to God's word. This brings us to the disputable things. Um, The liberty issues. We need to extend grace in those areas. And it can be difficult because maybe we have very strong opinions on that particular liberty issue um, or traditions that we've followed, preferences. And those invoke then strong convictions. And so if God, God is silent on that issue though, even in principle, then we also need to remain silent. doesn't mean we can't talk about it. But when we do engage, it's here's why I believe this to be true, or here's what led me to behave in this way on that issue. But again, leaving liberty and and room and grace, we need to extend grace in those areas. And that is one way that if we do extend grace, where grace is expected to be extended, we help to maintain the body, the unity of the body. Finally, and this is the goal of all judgment that takes place in the church, and all the admonition of sin between brothers and sisters, the point is always restoration. The point of judging others is not to punish, not to single out, not to um, elevate oneself in pointing out the sins of others. Galatians 6, 1, Paul says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So our approach is God's concern, His glory, His holiness, and your sanctification. So when we make these judgments, we do it to restore and to do it with a spirit of gentleness, which means we are applying that humility that Christ spoke about in the Sermon on the Mount, that we are already humbled by God's grace in our lives, and we extend that to others. We have benefited by God's our unmerited grace, God has extended His mercy and grace to us, and by we naturally extend that to others, or should. So God has given us this process because He wants believers to maintain that unity in the body, and He wants people to be restored to Himself and to others. So we don't esteem ourselves, but 
the love of the Lord who has restored us to himself through Christ is our motivation. So, judge we must. A believer's life is full of daily assessments of judgment and discernment. But we must remind ourselves that we are judging by God's standard, not our own. God's word gives us clear guidance and clear boundaries and the manner in which we are in the manner in which we are to judge. And the who and the where and the when of all of the discernment and judgment that we use on a daily basis. So it's not a judge, sorry, it's not a, a badge of honor to avoid judgment, which is said by so many. Um, I'm going to refrain from commenting, because who am I to say? And that's a true statement. Who are you to say? You're dust. But what does the Lord say is what we should be thinking of. It is not humility to avoid correcting a believer, and it's certainly not loving to tolerate a sin when you see it. So we must love the gospel in Christ who offered himself as a sin offering. And we must love that more than we love our own self-esteem, our own pride, our own tickled ears, and our own desire to see churches full for the sake of filling them. The integrity of the body, the sanctification in your lives, and the glory that we want to bring God is our motivation. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, as we've just looked at this seemingly contentious issue in a time where your truth, uh, the truth of your word is summarily de- um, rejected by the world. Lord, we are seen and placed as clarion callers in a world that does not want to hear it. And Lord, even amongst ourselves, we are called to um, maintain the purity of this body and of the church and to be watchful of each other's lives for, to, to protect the sanctification, to make sure that we are walking worthily, Lord. And Lord, we, are, we have a human condition, Lord. We are in, still dragging around that sin nature. So we sometimes have sensitivities that are high. We are told by the world that discerning and judgment is unloving. But Lord, what a loving thing if done for your glory. What a restorative process, Lord, that we could be made right by you by confessing our sins. And so, Lord, we just pray that that's how we would uh, view it. That's how we would live it out in this body and in our own lives, that we would love one another enough to speak the truth in love. I pray this in your son's name. Amen.